Well, good morning again. When you get out your Bibles, you're going to be going to Psalm 118, but that won't be for a little while yet. Okay. When we started our uh, sermon planning for the year of 2012, the month of May was going to feature a set of sermons that all uh, started with a certain TV show and then went from there to uh, talk about spiritual things that we could find in that TV show, or at least that show was going to be a launching pad to get us starting to talk about the things of God. And uh, midway through the month of May, our sermons changed course and changed direction, went with a different plan, and uh, I'd already begun work on my contribution to that series at that point. And so not wanting to see at least 45 minutes of good hard work go to waste, I decided to set that aside for, for later, which is now, and, uh, and preach that message then. And it ended up falling apart into three and then four different sermons. We're only going to do one of them this morning, and then later through the summer we'll uh, pick up the remainders that come from this particular show. So I either stumbled across a uh, profoundly theological TV show, or I'm just uh, incapable of coming up with new ideas on my own. Either way, we're going to put them all under the category of God is building his church. Now, by show of hands, and I do need you to, to help me here, how many of you are familiar with the show on HGTV, Homes on Homes? Many more of you than I expected. Even a couple of gentlemen. Outstanding. Okay, most guys would rarely, if ever, watch HGTV except for the noble purpose of sacrificially loving our wives. So, good work, some of you. The description of the show off of the HGTV website goes as follows. They can do it uh, better than I can. It's buyer beware when a homeowner contracts a home repair or renovation. The world is full of shady contractors who take shortcuts, use shoddy building practices, or employ a band-aid approach to repair work, often leaving homeowners in dangerous situations or out a ton of money. Renovation expert Mike Holmes believes in doing a job right the first time and is making it his mission to expose poor, substandard workmanship in the building industry with his internationally successful show, Homes on Homes. It's a Canadian show, so, oh my gosh, they watch it in America. It's internationally successful. In each episode, Mike rescues homeowners from repair and renovation disasters. Uncovering problems from plumbing and electrical to carpentry and roofing, he shows how the botched job should have been completed, fixing each project properly, and helping homeowners make more informed decisions in the future. There are two things in particular that I think make this show unique and compelling. First is the character of Mike Holmes himself. He is a, uh, a good guy, excellent contractor, skilled, honest, conscientious, a hard worker. He is not Ty Pennington. He is not a plastic, bubbly TV show personality. He's a, a really authentic and likable guy. We've got a, a couple of pictures here, so if you've never seen him, then you can see there he is doing his best impersonation of a cardboard cutout, and there he is uh, looking a little more friendly. Um, at least they've, they've edited him to look like he's a good guy, and I'm, I'm willing to believe it. Aaron also wanted me to point out that he has gold chains, muscle shirts, and an earring. And she wanted one of those cardboard cutouts, and when I asked her what we were going to do with it after the sermon, I did not like her answer, so I nixed that idea. 
The other point that's unique about the show is that uh, it's not just a simple renovation show from point A to point B. My kitchen was a mess, and now it's better, simple repair, Home Depot commercial. There's also the story of the family that has been in this uh, suffering a great injustice. They're in this horrible, desperate renovation situation. But through the course of 60 minutes, their house is brought from wreckage to a sparkling new reality. So while on the one hand, it's a simple show about residential home construction, whoop you doo it's also this superhero story of uh, rescuing the family in distress and snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Plus, they're all Canadians, so they talk really funny. They're even more adorable than Minnesotans. Each episode starts with the family at rock bottom. The details are always different, but the situation is always pretty much the same. Back in the past, this family determined that they could not continue living in their house in the condition that it was in, and they needed to undertake the grueling and challenging task of renovation. And sure enough, something went horribly wrong. Either their original contractor bit off more than he could chew, he got in over his head, or maybe he was a shady fraud from day one. Whatever happens, the first contractor is now gone, and he's abandoned them, and they are on their own. They're worse off than before. They haven't accomplished what they set out to achieve. They've thrown good money after bad, and they have no hope of finishing this project. They, uh, out of money, they got no skills, no hope. They're living in a dangerous construction zone. There's lawsuits and there's liens. Local government can't help. It is a real mess. Things don't turn around until this family realizes that they are at rock bottom and that this is a situation they cannot get out of. They are completely unable to do anything and their, their resources are insufficient to change their circumstances. So they reach out to Mike Holmes and plead to be on his show because they know that there is nothing that anybody can do except Mike Holmes. The situation calls for drastic external intervention because without outside hope, it is hopeless. Outside help, it is hopeless. Now, this story is a small, miniature version of what happens every day in the lives of sinners like us. It follows the exact same path. We recognize in its past that there is something wrong with our life, so we undertake various steps to try to address the issues. Maybe we get an education or we get a different job. We move to a different state. We get a new spouse. We get a new car. You get a new haircut. You have a child. All sorts of Modifications are made to one's life to try to address a problem that has its roots on the inside. And sometimes that works for a while, and you can paper over the problems until they resurface later. When God starts to work in somebody's life and starts to intervene, usually things get worse before they get better. Often God will use extraordinary and severe measures to bring that sinner to the point where they recognize they are at rock bottom. They are inadequate and insufficient to deal with the problem that they have. Sooner or later, as God works, the sinner realizes that there are problems they cannot fix by themselves. I can't fix my problems. I am insufficient to change my nature. I can't get free of the sin that is inside me. Sometimes this happens the easy way, where God will grip a person in childhood, and through the efforts of parents and Sunday school teachers, a child is made to realize that there is something broken with them on the inside, and they need the help of a Savior. But sometimes people really do have to run to the end of their rope and find themselves in prison or in a shelter 
or in rehab or in a hospital or at a graveside before they recognize that they need to stop running. They recognize that only God can rescue them. We must reach that point of brokenness before we can truly call out to God. So back to our desperate homeowners. When they get to the end of their rope, they turn to Mike Holmes because Mike is the only one who can help them. They've heard about his character, the sort of guy that he is, and they've heard about his work, the sort of rescues that he's been able to achieve in the past. And so they cry out to him for deliverance. And they turn away from the path that they're on that got them into the situation that they're in. They put themselves in his care and they follow his instructions, even if they seem difficult or um, more challenging than they ought to be. He comes into their house and he does his initial inspection and he finds a thousand and one things wrong. There's danger everywhere you look and stuff has been done wrong and it's even worse than these homeowners had even realized and they knew that there was something wrong and that they were stuck but it's usually even beyond what they were aware of so he takes over the house and he usually sends the family out out of the way out of all the work out of the mess sends them away so that he can get to work they listen and obey his instructions because they trust that his intentions for them are good And that while things might get ugly and hard and worse in the short term, they are going to get better in the long term. Now, you may have noticed that I deliberately phrased all that in somewhat religious language so that we can make the point that the way that the homeowners respond to Mike is the same way that we as sinners should respond to God. We get to the end of our rope. And we turn to Jesus because Jesus is the only one who can help us. We've heard about his character, the kind of guy that he is, that he's the son of God, the Messiah, who's holy and righteous and powerful and sent from God to do a work. And we've heard about that work that he did, the sort of rescue that he's been able to provide, provide to others that we know. Usually we hear about his person and his work through reading the scriptures and having them explained to us by somebody who has experienced that themselves and has known personally the sort of person that Jesus is and the sort of work that he can do. So we uh, get to that point and having heard about who he is and what he can do, we cry out to him and turn to him in faith. We cry out to him for deliverance and we put our belief in his person and his work. The homeowner puts their belief, their trust, their faith in Mike, and we as sinners put our belief, our trust, our faith in Jesus. We turn away from the path that we're on. We stop doing the things that got us into the mess that we're in. We call that repentance, and we put ourselves in Jesus' care, and we follow his instructions even though they might seem challenging. He comes into our life, and the initial inspection is unpleasant. He finds a thousand and one things wrong, even more than we had realized. Our soul is a more dangerous and treacherous place than we would have guessed without him pointing it out to us. We listen and obey his instructions because we trust that his intentions for us are good. And while things may get ugly and hard and difficult and even worse in the short term, we know that they are going to get better because we have faith in what Jesus is doing. Now, we've drawn some comparisons and similarities between Mike and Jesus. Uh, Mike, the savior of hopeless homeowners, and Jesus, the savior of sinners. Now, let's draw some contrasts so we can see how uh, our guy Jesus far outshines our friend Mike. 
Mike is qualified to help people on the basis of his character and his skills and his experience and his training, who he is and what he's done. Now, in the same way, Jesus is qualified to help us because of his person and his work, but in a far greater way. Jesus isn't just some good guy, a well-trained carpenter, a rabbi, wise moral teacher, guru. He is the son of God, God who came to be born as one of us, to live as one of us. He never had to deal with any sin in his life because from the day of his birth, he lived a perfectly righteous life, never breaking any sin and never neglecting any good work. Then at the climax and height of his ministry of preaching and teaching, he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross so that he could bear and absorb and exhaust the wrath of God against the sin of his people so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus is qualified to come into our lives and begin this work on the basis of who he is and what he has done. Now, at the end of an episode, Mike's work is done and he leaves. After great toil and lots of hard work, he has removed all of the dangerous stuff like asbestos and lead and mold, the bad wiring and the backward plumbing and the the termites and the raccoons and the drug paraphernalia, all the weird stuff that he's found in houses that he's had to clean up and remove. It's all gone. And he has remade the house the way it ought to have been in the first place and in fact gone beyond. He's brought it up to code and made it even better than the homeowners had originally intended. He gives them far more than they requested or they deserved. And uh, the big reveal at the end of the show is always a moment of uh, excitement and joy and gratitude, enjoyment, celebration, feasting, and of course, resting. In the same way, uh, at the end of our lives, God's work in us is done. After great toil and hard work and lots of labor. He has removed all of the dangerous stuff, the sin and the pride and the bitterness and the self-sufficiency, all those dangers that lurk inside our soul and makes it a death trap headed for condemnation. He has remade our lives the way it ought to be, brought us up to code and even gone beyond and given us his righteousness and made it possible for us to live lives that, that please God. He's made it better than we had ever imagined in the first place. And he's given us far more than we request or deserve, which we call grace. And at the end of our lives, the big reveal is going to be a moment of joy and excitement, gratitude, enjoyment, celebration, feasting, and resting in the world that is to come. Of course, we don't have to wait until the end of our lives to begin enjoying that. We can enjoy those benefits now because, uh, Mike is just one guy. He comes into town, he sets up shop, he does his work, and then he leaves. Jesus, when he comes into our lives, he comes in, he sets up shop, he begins his work, and he stays with us all the way from the first day of demolition through the very end of our life. Jesus is with us. He doesn't banish us from our homes. Instead, he invites us to work with him in the work that he is accomplishing. In fact, he invites us to assist him in the work that he is doing in each other's lives. He will even invite us to go find other people in your neighborhood that are living in shanties of darkness and despair and don't yet know that they need him so that they can be brought to him for assistance. Now, the work is hard. 
Jesus is a demanding Savior. He will sometimes make you uncomfortable about the stuff that he finds in your life. And he will not confine his attentions to the sections of your life that you thought needed attention. He will stray outside and go anywhere in your soul where he finds sin and root it out. And some of your friends and family and co-workers might not appreciate the work that he's doing in your life. You might be intimidated or harassed or embarrassed or even worse because you've been willing to associate yourself with Jesus. Next time that I preach, in two weeks, we will look at some of the sacrifices that Jesus calls us to and some of the outrageous demands that he places upon our life. But just like the homeowners trust themselves to Mike and follow his instructions, we can also trust ourselves in Jesus' hand, whatever he calls us to do, because we are confident that he knows what he's doing, he's trustworthy, and his intentions for us are good. It's worth all of the trouble in the meantime. So that's how the show works in, in a nutshell. And hopefully it's given you something of a fresh perspective on uh, the Christian life. Having given you a big picture uh, image of what the show is like, uh, the rest of our time today and in the weeks to come are going to focus on some of these specific ways in which uh, the renovation work that Mike does is similar to the work that Christ does in our soul, performed by the Spirit of God. You're going to need your Bibles soon, now that we're 20 minutes into the sermon. Once Mike takes on a project, one of the first things that he does is, uh, as he's making his inspection, before he can even get to work on a kitchen or a bathroom or an addition, is he has to examine the structure of the house and make sure that Everything works from the framing to the joists to the beams and down to the foundation because there's no point in him getting to work or doing anything if the foundation is insufficient. There's sometimes a lot of work that needs to be undone and fixed before he can start progress on what it was that he came to do. It is pointless to build anything on a poor foundation and the idea of foundations is what we're going to talk about the rest of our time this morning. I'm not an architect or an engineer, but I'd like to think that I've learned a thing or two from watching a lot of other people do a lot of hard work on the TV while I sit on my couch. From what I can gather, a proper foundation has five key aspects. It has to be square. It has to be level. It has to be secure. It needs to be watertight. And everything that's built on the foundation needs to be firmly and securely attached to it, not off the side and not off in the backyard. What's built has to be built on the foundation. If any of those things aren't right, you need to make it right before continuing. We've seen Mike pour new foundation sections to make things square. We've seen him jack up basements to make the foundation level. We've seen him uh, remove entire sections of foundation wall and ground so that they can be replaced and made secure. We've seen him excavate all the way around a house so that he can install new waterproofing and drainage systems to keep water away from the foundation. And we have seen him jack up and move and replace iron beams in the house so that they actually rest on the foundation the way that they're supposed to and not sitting all crazy catacorner. That is a picture, that is a picture of uh, what sits outside my window. There is a foundation that they've been building for at least the last four weeks. It was dug deep and they made sure it was level and they made sure it was square. And I watched those guys measure every little thing. And as I was working on this sermon, I would turn around at my desk and this is what I've been looking at. It's not nearly as pretty as the trees that were there before, but the trees are gone and they're not coming back. So that's 
That's that. The Old Testament talks a lot about foundations as well. Foundations of buildings, foundations of temples and cities, and even the foundations of the world. The general usage uh, is evoking an image of stability and uh, establishment, first beginnings. You begin with a foundation, and when he's talking about the foundation of the world, usually God is talking about his uh, purposes and providence that he has in place. That's all fairly ordinary. A foundation in Jerusalem is very similar to a foundation in Ottawa. And for your high school students, Ottawa is the capital of Canada. That's where a lot of the shows take place. Now, let's have you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. I want to draw your attention to a couple of verses that stand apart from all the normal usages and are a little bit different. If you find yourself in Psalm 119, you're very close by. You just need to go a little bit to your left. We're starting in verse 22. Psalm, uh, all the scripture references this morning are on the, in the sermon notes, which is on the back of your prayer and praise insert. So not only can you be praying for each other all throughout the week, you can also ha- have the scriptures there to reflect on what God has been saying to you this morning. Psalm 18, excuse me, 118, 118, uh, celebrates the Lord's deliverance of his people for being a God who is strong and mighty and who saves his people. We understand that this psalm is especially about the coming of Jesus, but at the time before he came, it would have been understood to be about Israel. Let's start in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone is the first stone of the foundation. It sets the square and establishes the level. And uh, the people of Israel developed the idea that just because they were God's people, Israel, the stone rejected by the nations but chosen by God, that he would always protect and defend them forever just because they were his people, Israel, no matter what. Now turn to your right to Isaiah 28. This is a time much later in the, uh, the story of the nation of Israel that people have abandoned God's ways, and they still think that God will always defend them and rescue them from their enemies since they are his people by birth, and they have his temple. They're trusting in Abraham. They're trusting their ethnicity. They're trusting their religious identity, and God says, not so fast. Not so fast. We're going to do something different than you expect. Go to verse 16 of Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, or sometimes whoever believes will not be put to shame. The emphasis here is that the foundation of God's people, the foundation of salvation, is belief, not birth, but belief, specifically belief in this stone, this Chosen cornerstone rejected by men, but established by God. So what are uh, Isaiah and the psalmist talking about? Fortunately, the New Testament authors lost no time to recognize these passages as being about Jesus. And uh, you can see on your own later from the scriptures and the notes that these two verses are quoted by no less than five different authors in the New Testament. There's Matthew and Mark, Luke, who also quoted it in Acts. Paul quoted it in Romans. And then Peter got it in her, his first love letter his first letter as well. And every single one of those references draws out the same idea, that uh, the, the idea of true faith in Jesus being the basis of salvation, and that that true faith leads to worshipful, sacrificial 
obedience. A rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God. An embrace of Jesus is uh, an abandonment of all else, all other efforts to please God. Jesus is the stone rejected by men, but embraced and established by God as the cornerstone of a new foundation of a new work that he is doing. The big idea is that God in the Old Testament, through his people Israel, was preparing and establishing a job site, a work location, and he was digging and preparing and making ready to lay this foundation, this new cornerstone, this tested, unique, precious stone, his son Jesus, to align the foundation, and then he was going to build on top of it. And Paul puts this all together for us in Ephesians chapter 2, which I've designated as our text for the morning, although we're just going to hit it and move on to other stuff. Ephesians chapter 2. After Galatians. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has been talking about how it's not just the people of Israel that can come to God. Now anybody can come to God. Even the Gentiles who are excluded from the people of Israel can come to God, the work of Jesus. And let's pick it up in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That was us, Gentiles, excluded from Israel. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Key points here. God is doing the building. He is building his church, which is made up of his people. God's church is where God dwells in the world today. Jesus is the cornerstone that brings the foundation into alignment. The foundation of God's building, God's church, is the apostles and prophets who gave us the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the uh, Bible is the foundation, and Jesus is the cornerstone of it because the Bible is meaningful not just because it is from God, but because it is about Jesus. In John 5, Jesus claimed that all the scriptures spoke about him, and uh, we reverence the Bible because it tells us about Jesus. It, uh, we can rest the weight of this church and the weight of our lives on this foundation, which speaks about Jesus. This is the word of God, and it tells us about Jesus, the son of God. In First Peter chapter 2, Peter hits many of the same things, many of the same themes, but he does it with a little bit different of a flavor. While Paul in Ephesians was trying to show that the foundation is Christ and not a religious identity or an ethnic identity in First Peter 2, Peter is trying to establish that the foundation is Christ and not good moral works, not righteous works. He has the foundation first, and then on top of the foundation, we build a, a life of uh, obedience and holiness. Peter also tells us why God is doing it this way in verse 9 and 10. He is establishing a people for his own possession, that you, that's us, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our obedience is not the foundation of our faith. It's the result of our faith so that God can be glorified. So we have obedience, which is resting on our faith, 
which rests on the foundation of the word of God. If your foundation is your faith or your foundation is your obedience, then your foundation is you and you can't carry that weight. Our obedience rests on our faith and our faith rests on the revealed word of God. Why are we working so hard to belabor the point that uh, Jesus is the cornerstone and that what the Bible says about him is our foundation because we need to get this right. We have to get the foundation right. What happens if the foundation is askew or faulty or insecure? A renovation built on that kind of foundation will crack and fail and crumble if the structure isn't right. So what will happen in our Christian lives if our foundation isn't right? We talked about five aspects of a secure foundation, so uh, let's see what can go wrong. We talked about one of them the last time I preached, about four weeks ago. We were in 1 Corinthians 3, and we talked about what happens when uh, the weight of your work isn't firmly resting on your foundation. What if you are not tying your work into the Word of God? If you're doing the right thing the wrong way, you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, for the wrong motives, or... Uh, If you're doing good work, you're doing it under your own power and not the power of the Spirit. We discovered last time that you can lose out on eternal rewards and enter into heaven empty-handed because it doesn't matter how diligent or skillful or hardworking and long-suffering you are or how good your intentions are. If you're not doing your work resting on the foundation, then you're building something that's not going to last and not going to receive the reward from our Master. Head to our last passage this morning in Luke chapter 6. Luke tells us very much the same thing, but in a slightly different way. We're going to go to Luke 6. Uh, Luke 6 is the uh, Luke accounting of the Sermon on the Mount. Takes Matthew three chapters to tell us Luke got it done in one by uh, cutting some stuff. And this particular passage made the cut. We're going to go to verse 46. There's going to be an expression, Lord, Lord. Um, It means master, and using the name twice is an expression of familiarity and intimacy and fondness. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Then, when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. This is the person who heard God's word and does it. Not hearing and understanding, but hearing and obeying. Not hearing and agreeing, but hearing and doing. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground. No digging, no going deep, no finding rock, just building a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Apparently it wasn't enough for Jesus to say that the house fell over immediately. No, also it was greatly ruined. No kidding. Thank you for that extra bit, Jesus. Now, storms will come against your house, uh, no matter how strong your foundation. The follower of Christ faces all the ordinary challenges of living in a fallen, sinful world. Sickness, disease, death, economy, that happens to everybody just the same. Plus, Christians face all the attacks and temptations of the enemy and all of the training and discipline of the Lord. There's going to be internal challenges and external challenges. And building on a strong foundation doesn't prevent them from coming. 
it does prevent you from collapsing under the weight of those challenges. If you're not tied into the foundation, which Jesus defines as hearing and doing his words, then your work will fail. And at best, you will lose out on eternal rewards. And at worst, you may discover you haven't been following at all. You haven't been obeying at all. You don't know Christ at all. And that is far worse than walking into heaven empty-handed. Okay, a good foundation is also watertight. A uh, hearing and doing is a lifelong endeavor. It's not something that you do once and then forget about. It's uh, a foundation needs to be maintained. Leaks need to be stopped. Cracks need to be patched. Holes need to be fixed. Because uh, when water can get into a foundation or get under a foundation, it's not going to go well for that foundation. And over time, it can fail. Hearing and obeying and making Jesus the cornerstone of your life requires lifelong Vigilance. Even a good, strong foundation must be watertight and examined regularly, or else it will be undermined and penetrated. Conduct regular checks on the foundation of your life. This is one reason we do communion, like Craig said, every week, so we can look at our life and make sure we're still resting on the foundation and making Jesus our cornerstone. We have the opportunity to remind ourselves and refresh our memory about who God is and what he's done what he has done in our life, what he is doing in our life, and what he has promised to accomplish in our lives. Is your foundation still level? Do you still place your reliance completely upon God's word? Or are you willing to overlook some parts that you might not be too fond of? When God's word says something clear about the nature of unborn human life or something unmistakable about God's design for sexual purity and the nature of marriage, do you pretend that it doesn't say that so as to avoid social discomfort? Because the world has a lot to say about those things and they're not the same as what's in the book. And you're frequently going to have to choose between going with this or going with what the world says. When God's God's word challenges you to give up something in your life you would rather not part with, possessions or a relationship or a habit or a dream for the future. Is that something that you resist or do you place yourself in uh, God's care and, and make the honoring and obeying of the word of God uh, part of the very foundation of your life? Lastly, is Jesus still your precious cornerstone? Does everything in your life come back to him? Is he the one who brings order and alignment to everything that happens in the house of your soul? Or have you removed him from the foundation and made him a decoration up in the living area? You might have a tea tea cozy that says God bless this house, but a cross on the wall is not at all the same thing as a savior that you can lean on as the foundation of your life and put your weight on. There are three clear responses to what we've seen in in the word this morning. First, believe in Jesus. He is qualified to take over your life and deliver you from your sin and be the very cornerstone of your existence. If you want to talk to somebody about what it means as an unbeliever to make Jesus the cornerstone of your life, then do that. Come find me after the service or one of the other elders. If you are a believer and you want to talk about what it means to continue making Jesus the cornerstone of your life, we'd be happy to talk about that too. Second, it's very likely that God is already calling you to some specific area of obedience that you have been resisting and neglecting. And um, 
If you are in his word regularly, then he is pointing at areas of your life that you would rather he didn't point at and didn't look at and just leave alone. There's an area of your sin that's in your life, and he's pointing at it. And if you're ready to abandon it, then this is a great time to do that. He knows better than you what the hazards are in your soul. Don't resist the instruction and training of the Holy Spirit. Don't endanger your foundation, your life, and your family by being slow to obey the Word of God. Third and last, tell somebody what God is doing in your life. If there's an area of obedience that you want to embark on, then tell somebody close to you. If there's an area of sin that you want to abandon, then tell somebody close to you. If you're just excited that Jesus is doing a work of renovation in your soul, then tell somebody about that too. Maybe even somebody who hasn't yet begun that work with Jesus and needs to start. Do as Peter says and proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, made you one of his people, and has showed you mercy. Now there's two great hymns, at least two great hymns of the faith, that help us remember and cherish these, these things. And the band is going to uh, come up and have us sing one of them. And while they're getting ready, I'm going to read you the other in closing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim but holy trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he, then, is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.